but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 151. Indian Wells has already started. It is the most joyous tennis time of the calendar for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Can we get that out of the I way right you're, away? why you're trying to troll right away. No, I'm not trolling. I just want you to get it off your chest, because A, I'm tired of hearing about it personally. <laughs> and I'm also tired of hearing you complain about how folks on Twitter are responding to you being like, why don't you like Indian Wells? Incredulously, you're wondering why is it that anybody would be shocked that you didn't like Indian Wells. So the mic is yours. Is it? Yeah, it Are is Are you yours. sure? Because you went on for a long time about my opinion. But take it away. <laughs> I just don't like the tournament. And you may ask why someone who has a tennis podcast doesn't like one of the biggest events on the calendar. And you The one will, set uh, in Tennis Paradise? And that you, will, one? Uh, you will continue to wonder. No, I want people to know. I want no, it to be dead and buried. I No, those reasons are my own, and that's it. That's it. Period. You are the troll, because you're out here saying this publicly. You are a public person at this point. You have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. And then you're wondering why person. people are coming at you wanting to know. Like, this is insane behavior. Okay, if I said, um, I don't like... Miami, I don't like the Paris Masters, I don't like Cincinnati. Would anyone care? No. I do I just wonder why people have such a vested interest in defending this poor innocent little tournament when somebody who doesn't matter, like me, says mm. they don't like it. I don't I just can't wrap my head around it. Okay. Well let's see. You can keep score at home how many times he alludes to or says explicitly he doesn't like it going forward in this episode. And the point is, I would I would be perfectly content not talking about it at all. Mm -hmm. But you won't let me do that. I, <laughs> I certainly will not. It would be a, a dereliction of duty as podcast hosts in this time to not talk about Indian Wells. NT way, Acapulco mm. was last week. Yes. I don't think Acapulco has garnered this much attention ever in I, its history. Do you? Well, that's because of one Nick Kyrgios, for better or worse. Right. Rafa drew Nick Kyrgios early in the tournament, and it was obviously a match to watch. Nick matches up well, seems like against all these top guys. He could go through a year of slumping against nobodies, but he always gets up for those matches. He seems to match up well against anybody should he choose to want to match up <laughs> against anybody. Right, right. And he's explicitly said that the, the, the top guys brings the best out of him. And lo and behold... Here we had it again. In that match, that match was fraught and had so much going on. Mm. Rafa had so many chances. In the second set, he had Love 40 on Nick's serve. Deep in the second set, already up a set and didn't convert. Again, toward the back end of the third set, he had Love 40 again and didn't convert. And again, in the third set deciding tiebreaker, Rafa had three match points up 6-3 and didn't win the match. Of course, later in the match, Nick hit an underhand serve because Rafa was standing so, so far back on return, which he is wont to do. 
A lot of folks found that very underhanded. Uh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. Uh, Nick actually didn't even win that point. No. But people were mad. The Raw fans were upset. They thought it was an act of blatant disrespect. And, of course, there were a lot of people on the other side saying, it's within the rules. What is the big deal? Rafa himself said, that is not my issue with mm -hmm. Nick. I'm not mad about the underhand serve. And a lot of folks have been clamoring for opponents to utilize that strategy against Rafa when we see him standing so far right. back on return. Uh, when you're, say, three meters behind the baseline, that's, mm -hmm. that's you know, like 10 feet. Why not use it every once in a while? Clearly, it's not something that's going to work consistently. It's not going to change the men's game fundamentally. But every once in a while, why not try it? The match did kick off a little bit of a, a, a row between Nick and Rafa and their camps. Nick was physically struggling throughout the whole match. He apparently was under some gastrointestinal distress as was everybody everybody i think i caught it from up in canada it was so <laughs> it was so right. violent it just oh my it soared across the continent <laughs> he did have to leave the court in the the first set he had some uh, back issues right there are all sorts of physical problems there were throughout ailments. this match there were ailments and, physical and mental and a lot of uh you know, journalists were tweeting, well, Nick is obviously going to retire within the next few minutes. And that was the beginning of the second set. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm watching this and he's not retiring. And he seems to be gathering strength. Say what you want about Nick's play and his comportment with relation to Rafa and how Rafa received that. And the effect that that may have had on Rafa's psyche or the, the end result of the match. But the bottom line here is Rafa Nadal is a 17-time Grand Slam champion, lauded as one of the most mentally capable and strong players in the history of this sport. And he had umpteen chances in this match, and he mm -hmm. didn't take them. Right. So that is the bottom line for me. What we get coming from this match is a lot of saltiness, to quote Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> Not, <laughs> of course, he said Rafa was salty, mm. um, but from all parts, from Rafa's fans, from Nick's fans, just everybody talking about this match, there was a lot of saltiness, right? Yeah. So much drama surrounding this match that was kind of extraneous to the actual tennis. Mm -hmm. And this is what you'll find in, uh, in Nick Kyrgios' matches, even when he wins, right? Not to put all the blame on him, Rafa said something that I think the quote was taken a little bit out of the larger context of the conversation. But he said, you know, while Nick has all this talent and could be number one and can win slams, he seems to lack respect for himself and the game, his, the game and his opponents. I, I think it's something that Rafa would have probably said in other contexts. If he hadn't just lost, I believe that is probably his opinion. But listen... Those words were taken from the Spanish portion of the of the post-match interview. And Rafa did go on to say a lot of nice things about Nick. Right, right. You know, but we get the screenshot of the translated saltiness. And then Nick runs with it. Well, he takes course. to Instagram. He has to clap back. Yeah. Then Benito uh, from Rafa's team has to clap back as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just stop. It's stop. It's embarrassing. It's ugly. And... How did this become a beef? 
the players involved, let them go toe-to-toe, salt-to-salt as much as they want. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the ones involved. What I am not here for, and it's something I've seen a lot in recent times, is folks, extended folks within the camp, be it the coach, the hitting partner, the agent. We've seen a lot of agents uh, getting yeah. involved lately. And know your place is my like, is my perspective. Like, I don't need you out here making this shit worse. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear your agent moralizing about how this guy lacks the proper respect. It's and even on. if we were to take Rafa's translated words at face value about Nick not respecting himself or the game or whatever, that type of moralizing is something I'm, I'm want to side-eye to begin with. Right, but are there many people in tennis, even Nick's fans, who would disagree with that? That Nick doesn't take himself seriously? That he has so much untapped potential that he has, for many reasons let slip away he mm-hmm. still has plenty of time yeah. but you know he's out there picking fights with people in the crowd when we know for the most part crowds support him so he you know he finds that one person who's heckling and it's it's just like it's he not, does <laughs> self-destructive things within matches uh-huh. it's not just picking fights it's telling people to go f- fuck off well, <laughs> That is wild. Right, right. That is wild to be in between points and then be pointing up to the stands and saying, fuck you, mate. Like, Uh, that is just not on, on any level. I mean, if you want to, it's fine. Like, I'm not personally offended by that because I am not somebody who would be calling out during a match. Mm -hmm. Like, I would not heckle a player. So you you should kind of expect to be clapped back. But if you're Nick Kyrgios, is this helping you within a match or is it hurting you? Mm-hmm. Where are we with Nick now? Because we've we've given lots of airtime to talking about Nick Kyrgios over the years. We've evolved over time, and I suspect that we're we're taking another little fork in the road. We are. For me, I'm taking a bit of a break. Uh, I just need I just need a breather from Nick and all of the the drama that comes with it. I feel like at this point, you know, you're a little grown up. You don't have to rise to every single piece of bait that is dangled in front of you. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the stuff is put out there simply to antagonize him. From the Australian press, from press around the world, these clickbait headlines. You don't have to respond to every little thing. It, it comes off as immature. You then become the victim every time. Sometimes you are legitimately, legitimately the victim. We know this. <laughs> right. But then when you're casting yourself in a sense as the victim every time it becomes tiresome to consume as a viewer and where i am with nick right now it seems every tournament he's laboring physically there's something else going on at this point being 23 and being on tour for so long i want to see what your agency is in all of this take control of your career of your life like you have ailments you take some time off you have enough money at this point. You get whatever surgeries you may need. You explore various avenues. Maybe get a coach. Uh, if you don't want to have a coach, that's fine. That's your choice. But time and again, we're seeing the, all these different facets of Nick Harris's career boil down to Nick not really taking ownership and control in a way that will cast him as something other than the victim. And... You know, I'm overcoming all these elements. You know, obviously he feeds on that. Yeah. But there has to be more at some point. If that drives him, then, okay, like that's his personality. But 
The point is it hasn't been successful. It hasn't, up until now, at Acapulco, it hasn't really been driving him much of anywhere. He was mm -hmm. ranked, what, 72 going into this tournament? Yeah. Like, with all that talent. I'm not here to tell him what to do with his career, but you ask where we are with Nick, I need a little bit of a break. Yeah. And by saying all that, what I mean is, if Nick is comfortable with having this was his fifth career title, mm -hmm. if he wants to win, like, maybe 15 titles in his career, maybe not win a Grand Slam, and pop up here or there and beat the big guys, make a bunch of money in the process be like a much better version of Jack Sock when Jack Sock could win singles matches. <laughs> like, if that's what you want, I said this about Jack back then before he made the top 10. Do it. Be you. Do do you, boo. You know, if that's what you want, if that's all you want from your career, that's your business. Well, that's actually okay. Yeah, Because you, you're not actually being sarcastic. No, I'm being serious. Yes, because if if you're somebody who feels you can contribute to the world in a different way or your life is meaningful for different reasons that's awesome you don't have to be pete sampras or, no. you know or if you just don't give a fuck and that's what you want to do <laughs> that's fine too however own that part of it as well mm. you know like you're clearly haunted by the the specter of your talent right and how that doesn't align with what your body is giving you at a certain point that the relationship between those two not lining up is like a lack of your own effort being put into it on some level this many years in is what i'm saying mm. right and and so when all that is going on if all i'm getting as a viewer every single time you're in court even if you're winning and thrilling and you're clearly like the best thing to have happened to men's tennis this year shy of Djokovic winning again in Australia or whatever, right? You you made the ATP matter in a non-slam week. That is not nothing. Like you Absolutely. have a lot to give to tennis. But even in spite of that, I'm at the point where I'm struggling to even receive that well because I'm tired of the other stuff, which is where the break comes in. Elsewhere last week, you'd think that this would have been the biggest story in men's tennis last week because Roger Federer won the 100th title of his career. Yeah, Dubai happened at the same time and received, I would say, a lot less of the the attention mm -hmm. of the week. Well, we're also biased based on when these matches are happening in real time. Like The Acapulco matches were happening in prime time and later at night on the East Coast mm, here. Right. So it made made for easier viewing. Maybe that's coloring our perspective. But it definitely seemed like the Dubai tennis took a backseat to Acapulco right. last week. So Federer enters the 100 club. The only other man in the 100 club is Jimmy Connors with 109 singles titles. Of course, many women have done it. <laughs> Martina Navratilova has like 674 titles across you know, mm -hmm. women's doubles, mixed and singles. But they're being uh, in this... deducted from her career tally one by one with every passing week. I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> How these people have attacked her, taking away her hardware, mm. ruining her legacy with every word she writes. Mm -mm. It's, it's tragic. These PC Nazis. <laughs> this this accomplishment in this day and age in tennis is really something special. Players play far fewer tournaments. They meet top players way more frequently than they did in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Federer reaching 100 singles titles is... Uh, I, I don't want to compare it to Jimmy Connors' accomplishment, but it is 
impressive in a different way. Well, it's more impressive. <laughs> I have no problem saying that. One of the things that we learned this week with all the stuff going on with Chris Kermode and the new leadership that we're going to be seeing from the ATP, whatever that is, is that we got a couple of retrospectives as to the history of the ATP and how it's gotten to where it is now. You know, over the years, over the decades, there have been various crisis points where players have agitated for change and the tour has evolved in a in a positive way since. So that was one of the things that I read to say like, well, we don't know what's going on now, but you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, let, let's see where this plays out. But what we learned was in the late 80s, one of those crisis points was uh, where the Masters 1000 series came to be. It was born out of that labor disruption. Players and, wanted top players to meet more yes. often. And so the current iteration of the ATP stemmed from that late 80s situation. And it's safe to say for me that the quality of of player that Federer would have faced set aside, you know, that period from 03 to, you know, 08. <laughs> if you want to be that person, fine. But even in spite of that, it's safe to say that he's had more to do, right, I would right. say. Because, you know, the quality of player was there. Mm-hmm. through the 80s, right? Like Lendl and Connors and McEnroe and Vlander and all these people were meeting. They met a lot, but they didn't play 30, 40 times like the, the big four are playing yeah. now. And so Federer's accomplishment of winning 100 titles is incredible. That he's still able to win titles at 37, it's not something that we should take for granted, quite frankly. It's not easy. Right. Even if you think that Dubai is not that strong of a field. It's what, a, a ATP 500. He still beat Tsitsipas in the final. Right, who made his top 10 debut. Somebody who's really on a roll. Who had just beaten him in Australia. Other big news this week. Naomi Osaka just dropped this out of nowhere. Jermaine Jenkins, former hitting partner of Venus Williams, brother of Jarmir Jenkins, is now her head coach. She didn't say that explicitly when she put this photo on her social media, but we it has been confirmed after that that he was appointed head coach, not just hitting partner. Talk about a glow up and landing on your feet. Right? Because you, you kind of felt bad for Jermaine at the start of the year when Serena keeps Jarmir, but then Venus dumps him unceremoniously <laughs> to the curb. and But then we find out that he's been picked up by the USTA as I think what the head of not a head but he was named a national coach yes for women's, for women's tennis. tennis and we're like okay that's that's no no small potatoes right and then now he lands as head coach of the world number one but that's uh, that's something I would say that's a glow up mm-hmm. since his previous job was a hitting partner yeah he wasn't the head coach for and so of course one of the the fallouts from this is folks are like oh my god like is Oracine next <laughs> yes, uh, Naomi has dipped her toe into the Williams pond before, clearly with Big Sasha, but also Serena's former physio, a few other folks from her team. Fine. You want people who have worked with the best. But <laughs> the uh, the exodus of Williams staff to the Osaka camp is a little glaring for some people. Mm. And see, the way I look at it, we have a black head coach of the world number one. Mm-hmm. I think that's incredible. Right. I, like you just said, think that it's natural for somebody to look to folks who have worked with the best. 
to then help them along. And also, it's kind of cast as seedy that she'd want to steal these people away who have insider trade secrets to then beat these people. You know, that's kind of one of the undertones. (laughs) Uh But also, yeah, that makes sense too. (laughs) I mean, is that like against the law? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have all these players out here retreading the same super coaches, players who've run all these players into the ground physically and it's just a coaching carousel of the same names over and over Mm. and over again you can't keep track i don't know how that is more beneficial than getting somebody who is new and and is not as far removed from his own playing career no if that helps yeah naomi obviously wants somebody who can hit with her that was a big appeal of hiring sasha Bottom line for me, I'm not mad about it. I find it hard to get worked up about that stuff. We are at the point in the schedule where Indian Wells is going on. Currently, we've chosen to record rather than watch Venus Petro. Well, I'm, I kind of orchestrated that because I don't think I have that in me right now. <laughs> <laughs> this matchup is one that has gifted us so many great matches over the years. But I fear after Venus's opening round and Petra's current form that it would not have made for pleasant viewing for my spirit. Mm-hmm. So we shall see if you're right by the time we finish this. But the match that everyone's talking about happened last night, Serena versus Vika. Early on in the tournament, second round, because of Vika's depressed ranking, she doesn't have a seed. You know, the star power on display and the quality of tennis was something just we, we were lucky to witness. This rivalry has... Did you just call it a rivalry? I did. (laughs) This rivalry has produced a lot of, I would say, classic matches. Mm -hmm. Even though Vika has only won four, I think, against Serena. I think it's something like 18 and four now. Yeah. So the head-to-head is lopsided, obviously. But there's something magical when these two play each other because they bring out something special. It's something that I've always pushed back against when folks are talking about Serena and her rivals. And we know that within established tennis media, there's always been a drive to have somebody up there with Serena who can, quote unquote, push her. Right. A Steffi and Monica, mm-hmm. a Chrissy and Martina. And that was one of the, the weapons that was used against Serena to diminish her career up until around 2012, that she hadn't had the same kind of opponents and rivals as other players in that tier of, say, 12 to 15 slams, right? Right, right. Serena's managed to push way beyond that, so it's it's moot. But at that time, it was like, well, who is she beating? Who are her rivals? It's really just Justine. And they would never say Venus, Mm -hmm. because people take for Mm -hmm. granted that Venus is not somebody who has pushed Serena her entire career and has been her strongest opponent. Right, or or that the competition between them is somehow not as legitimate yeah. as other players. They're right? just sisters playing mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, the, 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 the spectacle of Venus and Serena playing each other is not something that we've ever been able to fully categorize or put into context to be able to make full sense of historically. Mm-hmm. And I think that's borne out in that way. But I've always felt that Victoria Azarenka was that person in the 2000, 2010s, yeah. specifically 2012 yeah. forward. And 
three years ago when Vika beat Serena in Indian Wells. I felt at that time, wow, like that we could finally have a moment where folks could give them their due together and give Vika her credit as well for mm-hmm. what she's been able to do against Serena. Because when you look at 4 and 17, that does not inspire rivalry. You know, you don't think rivalry when you right. see that. And people then compare it to Sharapova, who has won, what, twice against Serena and not since 2004 or five. Like it's 2004. Been, yeah, it's been a decade and a half. Right. And since then, how long, how many times have their matches gone the distance? If they've gone to three sets, was there a real question in, mm-hmm. you know, in the later stages, who's going to win this? And it's not even about three sets because we saw in just a two-set match last night that so much can happen within those two sets. Mm-hmm. What I saw was what I recall from back in the day now that these two absolutely, one, take each other seriously. Oh, yeah. They respect each other's games, and they bring a certain level of extra je ne sais quoi (laughs) to their matches that is brought out by the other. You know, and that that is something that when you're watching, it passes the eye test of a rivalry, even if that's not reflected in the overall head to head. Right. Serena won the first set, and it was very close, but you didn't get the sense in the second set that she was about to run away with it. It ended 6-3 in the second set, but for most of it, you still felt that if Vika could, you know, land one serious blow in the second set, that this is still really a competitive match. Or hold on to her serve in key moments, because every time she broke Serena, she gave it back right away, Mm -hmm. essentially. But what I love about Vika is that she said this in press before, and I believe it. She loves playing these top players. She feels like her career has been richer for it. Even if she's lost these matches, those two successive U.S. Open finals, for me, watching her in those finals against Serena, like I respected her 25 times more than I did before. I was blown away with how she played, how she competed, even if she lost. Those are classics, both of those, in my mind. You know, watching the ground game between the two, I feel like Serena hasn't played at that level that often in the comeback. You mentioned that you were really impressed with her footwork. Yes. I don't. I think that Vika can watch this match and say, this is some of the best tennis I've played since I won the Sunshine Double. Yeah. Period. Easily. In Australia, Serena's winning matches... And even, you know, most of last year, she was winning most of her matches. But you could still see moments where she could be Mm -hmm. Mm wrong-footed. Or she was... Serena is so talented that she can be completely out of position and win a lot of those points Mm -hmm. off the ground. There There were times in this match where even if her footwork wasn't ideal and she found her body not in the best position to hit the ball, say she was too close to the ball she was still able to make that work, Mm -hmm. which is not something that she's been able to do consistently. Right. And the thing that I was most impressed with, well, I've said that a lot, but another (laughs) of the things that I was impressed with were the the short-angled shots. They were crazy. Short-angled return winners. A couple of those short-angled backhand winners, I was like, just stop. We're, We're talking about like 15, 20 shot rallies 
where it's just ratcheting up every single shot mm-hmm. and it's not the the point is not being ended on a on an error it's somebody finding something else mm-hmm. and that is a type of stuff despite it just being 7563 that just invigorates me as a fan of tennis yes and you are a long time Andre Agassi fan did yes. you feel like you were watching Agassi rallies at certain points where he is bam 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 and then figures out a way to slip in this angle that's going to end the point uh, that's an apt comparison it wasn't something that i was thinking okay. in the moment i was just <laughs> i had given myself into the moment uh-huh. in a way that i haven't really felt in a long time i mean i there are lots of matchups that i enjoy in women's tennis i've loved watching kerber and halep recently of course venus and petra i love but there was something about these two playing again three years later at the site of the last time that they played when it seemed like back then that would augur so much and it didn't because they Mm -hmm. both went in and had monumental life changes rewrite the trajectories of their careers Mm -hmm. you know this match had heft built into it and they both delivered and the the subtext of their rivalry before then it's something that i felt that i had missed and again, I don't want this to be an indictment of a lack of rivalries on the WTA tour because I don't think that that's the case. But this was something else. Elsewhere in Indian Wells, we talked about Venus playing Petra right now. Currently, it's on serve 3-all, 30-love Venus. In her first match, Venus played Petkovic. And it was one of those matches where Venus had no business winning. <laughs> I've said this repeatedly in recent years after having suffered through all those years of Venus losing three-set matches that she should have won. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now Venus is winning three set matches that she had no business winning. It's yeah, it's yeah. uh, I don't I don't want to say equally stressful, but stressful in different ways. But Venus was down in the first set, four two, came back and won six four in that first set, then loses a bagel second set to Petkovic, and then as she does, gets off to a lead in the third set, and there we go. Mm-hmm. Didn't look good. Didn't look in physically great condition. No. And we just have to remind ourselves that Sjogren's is not something she has overcome. Like, it's not something that's been cured. It's a constant management of her body. It was a match I was particularly interested in watching because she had just come off spending three weeks training in high altitude in Arizona, Mm. which seemed a bit peculiar at the time. (laughs) Three weeks at Northern Arizona University. I'm sure the tennis teams there were beyond thrilled. Yeah. She looked like she was having a ball. Mm -hmm. But moreover, she was putting in work. Yeah. And so I wanted to see the fruit of this work. And then we're reminded that, well, damn, what we're seeing here is it's likely a Sjogren's day. The frustrating thing is, like, she could have prepared extremely well, and that was just one bad day. Mm -hmm. She woke up and just didn't feel right. Or Quebecois king, Félix Auger-Alessime, had the biggest win of his life wow, today. Yo. His first match against the top 10 opponent and his first win. That's been the story with Felix lately. A lot of firsts, two firsts at the same time. Right? He's 18.5 years old. I keep reminding <laughs> yes, people. Yes, you keep saying. He's got a he's new gonna haircut. He's going to have a lot of firsts. A new haircut. Mm-hmm. Who did he wallop today? He walloped Stefanos Tsitsipas, mm. who's played 18 tournaments already this year. <laughs> Vlogged about 25. Yes. Felix just went out there and did what he was supposed to do. 
Stefanos didn't have... It didn't appear that he had much of a game plan. Like, he didn't have a lot of answers against Felix. Felix did the big serving, ventured to net uh, whenever he could. The forehand was on fire. Like, everything was working pretty well. Mm -hmm. You know, he got an early break in both sets, and that was that. You didn't even get a sense watching that Stefanos was about to make a big comeback. If you are yet to jump on the Felix train, we encourage you to do so. Felix has a beautiful game, one that's only going to develop even more. Uh, the spins, the classic nature, the classic lines on court, and he seems like a seriously good dude. So yeah, there's, there's just not a lot of drama, not many frills with Felix. He just kind of goes out there and does it. On the woman's side, Serena beats Vika, but then now she gets to play Muguruza, who had an easy win over Lauren Davis. And wins have not been easy for Garbina in recent times. Certainly not. And I, you would expect that Garbina would <laughs> show up. I expect regardless. her to show up against Serena, definitely. But she's not the most comfortable on hard courts. She may be, I don't know, maybe more comfortable on this court because it's slower, it's grittier. Mm-hmm. She's beaten Serena twice on clay, but never off clay. Okay. I'm just saying, it's a third round with another boom-boom big-name matchup. Yes. And the winner of that match will then get a, a seemingly resurgent Joe Conta, taking out Shea 6-love-6-2. Six six she plays Kiki Burtons. That is like the, the, the marquee part mm-hmm. of that section there. And so that is the bottom half of the draw. In the other quarter, it's Simona Halep, Ostapenko winning two matches. Oh, well, one match, but hello. <laughs> Ostapenko winning a match 6-2-6-1 is noteworthy but in this day and her age. Her winning a match. Well, it wasn't that messy, but... <laughs> and uh, on the other side of the draw, we get to see Naomi Osaka in her first tournament with Jermaine Jenkins and her first tournament defending a title. This is where it all got started last year. Her first title of her career was at Indian Wells. And she gets to play Kiki Mladenovic, who just beat her, I believe, in Dubai a few weeks ago in her first match since winning the Australian Open. Right. So she gets a do-over right away to try and, you know, get that bad, what do you call it, juju, mm-hmm. out of the system. She could play Danielle Rose Collins after that. Danielle, le- let, me, let us just pause here. So... The WTA Insider published an interview with Danielle Collins this week that uh, should assuage your fears of Danielle Collins being MAGA. Read not, the in- not Jamaican MAGA as in skinny. No. But MAGA. M-A-G-A. Okay. Read the interview and tell me that she's a Trumper. You can't do it. She's college educated. Listen, college educated white woman voted for Trump. <laughs> So I'm just saying I'm going to need to see a lot of receipts. Okay. A lot of I I do not blame anyone for being skeptical, Mm -hmm. for comparing her to Colleen Vandeweghe politically and socially. But it seems like this young woman, she she knows her stuff. She majored in media studies. As did you. Which is actually what I, yeah, what I went to grad school for. I'm just, I'm relieved Mm -hmm. because I'm ready to be a fan of her blatant disrespect. (laughs) <laughs> the screaming, the laughing, I like it. The overall aggression. Do not call her feisty because that is clearly gendered. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like it. So every time you see a clickbaity headline calling her feisty, clap back at Listen, it, please. Listen, Tennis.com just did it yesterday. I, <laughs> Sinclair Broadcasting, thanks a lot. Trash. <laughs> just as I thought. 
Listen, Daniel Collins's laugh is something that I want to bottle and make a ringtone. Mm. I'm it's, so and I'm so glad she's leaning into how annoying it is. <laughs> like she know she gets it. Oh my god. It. The Indian Wells promos where she's going around screaming come on at everybody. <laughs> Listen, at the Australian Open I tweeted that in like 50 years Daniel Collins is going to be riding around the nursing home mm-hmm. in her wheelchair screaming at people with canes to be like come on get out of the way. <laughs> but more to to what you're talking about. I'm excited for somebody and I think Daniel Collins is a unique person within the WTA. Somebody who is college educated, who clearly is uh, knowledgeable about a lot of stuff and also not fearful about speaking out about certain things. Mm-hmm. And she's at a point where perhaps she's not fearful of losing sponsorships. She didn't come up as a young phenom. So it's not like, you know, she's had all this added pressure or spotlight on her her entire career. Well, the point is... She She's a grown woman. She doesn't have an IMG agent no. sitting next to her in the interview telling her to maybe don't say that, <laughs> which is what we saw, you know, unsuccessfully yeah. in the undefeated interview with Naomi Osaka. Yeah. Naomi said what the fuck she wanted, yeah. but the journalist noted that the agent uh, tried to steer it away. Mm-hmm. Not going to say much more about the woman's draw. Uh, on the men's side, um, frankly, I don't really care. I, we, we're on a break. Felix for the win, period. Yeah. And on that note, onto the etc. portion of the podcast. First up, this ATP presidency situation. <laughs> We've been covering this for a few months now. Uh-huh. In Australia, there was supposed to be a vote that had to be postponed to Indian Wells. And now we get word that Chris Kermode's contract will not be renewed. He will not get a third term as president of the ATP. Yes. So to be clear, the ATP board of directors voted on the renewal of Chris Kermode's contract, declined to renew it. The uh, ATP Players Council voted earlier in the year and were at a deadlock at 5-5. They didn't vote again. So the, uh, the ATP board vote went ahead as planned at Indian Wells. Novak Djokovic is the president of the ATP Players Council. The, the Players Council has three representatives on the board, and they take into consideration the recommendation or, or, or the votes that come forth from the Players Council. Yeah. Theoretically, these player representatives, who, to be clear, are not part of the council. So, you know, the, the Players Council elects these three people. Justin Gimelstab is one. Uh, Dom Inglot is another one. And the other guy is the former senior vice president of Tennis Channel, which, of co- I mean, of course they represent players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the things that Novak is talking about now as one of the main issues going forward is the fact that Chris Kermode was so conflicted throughout his tenure, having to vacillate between assuaging the tournaments and the players, and that this is something that he's wanting to, to upend going forward and create a situation where the the superstructure of the ATP is different so that the ATP president is no longer conflicted in those those many ways having to to uh to make you know competing interests happy right that, so that's interesting and it's something we've talked about for years now it's something that Robin Haza who is an active player and is on the players council clearly grasps that the the way that tennis's governing bodies are structured is really strange, right? Like the CEO of the ATP 
at some points sides with players, at other points sides with tournaments. They're forced to toe the line between these two conflicting groups. You can see that at certain points, one or the other has more leverage, has more bargaining power. The point is, the ATP as it exists now is not going to fully support players' interests. And the Players' Council is merely an appendage of the ATP. It's not a separate union. It's not a bargaining unit, right? Like, they can make recommendations, they can agitate, but it is not a players' union. And so folks are saying, well, yes, we've had a lot of improvements in the last, what, 10 years or so. Like, we're making a lot more money, our pensions are better. However, things can always be better. Mm -hmm. And I ain't mad at that. No. Like, that is absolutely within your your right as a player to agitate for more. Because we know that what you're getting in terms of prize money and the pool of prize money is probably a pittance compared to what's being generated for the tournaments and sponsors. Mm -hmm. And, of course, obviously compared to major sports. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's a huge issue with the new lower level structure in tennis that it's becoming even more inaccessible to lower ranked players to better themselves and get more points and make money right like it the 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 wealth needs to be spread not just amongst the top players or the top 100 but even further down the rankings if tennis is to sustain itself and make it more viable for players to have careers Mm -hmm. and that's an itf initiative Mm -hmm. but ATP players obviously have a vested interest in that, in player development, and in players who fall in that sort of limbo where they thought they were ATP players, and now they can barely get into tournaments. Robin Hassa made a point of saying, the tournament reps are out here now saying, well, we're, we're just disgusted that this has happened to Chris Kermode. But he tells us that not just... <laughs> Not more than six months ago, these same folks were ready to vote Chris Kermode out. <laughs> right. And I believe it, like, the, the tides change very frequently depending on the issue of the day. So, to be clear, I don't, you and I don't really have a stance on whether Chris Kermode should stay or go. No. Um, a lot of the journalists, especially the UK press who have taken this up recently, clearly have a strong opinion that this is a bad idea. Simon Briggs, to his credit, has been following the story from day one, and he's basically one of the only ones, um, he's with The Telegraph, who's been reporting on it consistently. So now it's opened up to a vast swath of the tennis press. But Simon Briggs was out there a while ago. So now you're seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of snarky reporting about, wow, this is a really shitty idea. You know, the insinuation that Novak Djokovic either doesn't know what he's doing or that it's motivated by greed. And the point is, we don't know. Novak has been very tight-lipped about his motivations. He refuses to go on the record of about whether or not he supported Kermode's tenure. I mean, I think it's clear that he was part of the faction that voted against him, but we don't know that for certain, well, because we, he hasn't said it. What we do know is that Novak has placed himself squarely at the center of this, Yeah, being the president of the ATP Players' Council. And he should be prepared to deal with the brunt of the pushback, especially given how cagey he's been about where he stands. Right. I mean, he's been open about wanting reform mm-hmm. and wanting change. But what is that reform? He was asked about it again in press this tournament, and I read like 10 paragraphs and still didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> so the elephant in the room 
is that... And th- that is the horse that we have in this race. Well, that that's it, right? Like, if the ATP wants to turf their CEO, I really don't care. Like, that is not interesting, and it's not news, historically. No. It's, it's not something that interests... Because it's happened time and time again. Right. And it's not something that would interest most tennis fans. The reason that this is bubbling up is that Justin Gimmelstab is on the ATP board of directors. He's currently under indictment for a felony. He took a leave of absence from Tennis Channel, but he has not suspended any of his duties with the ATP board. No. That's that's glaring, right? And to me, from what we've gathered from all of this, is that we know that Gimmelstab feels that he has a serious future in the ATP governance structure. Like, he could be the next CEO of the ATP. It's easy to take a leave of absence from Tennis Channel. What is he going to lose from that? If he is acquitted, he will probably be welcomed back. He has plenty of friends there. He's powerful. Listen, Novak has already laid the groundwork for that by right. say, by refusing to comment on the ongoing legal issues that he has and saying that if nothing is is found egregious or whatever, then you know who am I to mm-hmm. comment on it? But the fact that he has continued working at the ATP board, participating in these votes, just makes men's tennis look absolutely bush league and tacky. Uh, does this happen in other major sports? Maybe, but when the, the spotlight is shining so clearly on this one person, most organizations would say, dude, like you need to take it yeah. back because you're making us look bad. Yeah. Like it's not a moral decision. I'm not that naive. Yeah. And if the, you know, Kermode was voted out essentially this time around. And folks are saying, well, if you know for sure you don't want him, who do you want? And we're not being told that. And people are saying, well, we don't want to to, to show our hand, you know? <laughs> and but who is in the hand? Yeah. <laughs> like we, we can see the writing on yeah. the wall here. There's nothing wrong with wanting more for the players, but at the cost of having Gimmelstab in charge, like, are they working throughout this process with him in mind? And that's where we have a serious mm-hmm. issue. And also, when they're doing all these negotiations to like get a bigger piece of the pie, are they doing it in ways that, I mean, fine, you don't want to say they'll bring along women's tennis, but will they do it in ways that will actively harm women's tennis? Because we know that the history of the ATP is one that's been extremely exclusionary toward the WTA. Way back in the 70s, the WTA was like, hey, we're forming this tour. Like, do you want to do this together? Like, uh, uh, sorry. Right. No. No, even on things that would likely benefit yeah. men's players, the ATP has been like, no, mm-hmm. absolutely so not. So the two things that we want to know is, is Justin Gimbelstab your guy? And are you going to be working by working actively or by default to the detriment of the WTA? And I don't want to hear stuff about, well, what is the WTA doing for themselves? Because that is not how the world works. It's not how the world works outside of tennis. And that still applies within tennis, even if you can find fault with the leadership of the WTA. And, you know, like those hmm. things work parallel in a lot of ways. Okay. The other thing is that I still am curious about what about lower ranked players who are not part of the Players Council? How do they feel about the whole thing? You know, there's plenty of guys at Indian Wells this week who. I don't know if they would go on record, but you have to ask questions, right? Just what is, what is your take on this? Because we've heard a lot from Stan, mm-hmm. Roger, and Rafa saying that they disagree and that they have not been approached about their opinions. And 
okay, <laughs> this is this is interesting because in some senses, all right, the players council should be looking to represent their constituents. But on the other hand, these guys are extremely powerful, wealthy. They're not journeymen. Mm-hmm. It's hard to feel too, too bad about them being excluded when they can make their presence known. Well, you're sounding like Novak here. No, no. Because Please, Novak, no. Well, Novak said when, when asked about, you know, what about these guys who said that they haven't been consulted? He's like, well, they can come talk to me as well. Right. But that is a clear dodge from Novak. But to my mind, if I'm the president of the ATP Players Council, you're in that role for a reason and the onus. One of the job descriptions has to be to reach out to folks to find out what their opinions yeah, are. You're yeah. representing them. And so it has to be more of a top-down onus than to say, well, if you want to come talk to me, you can come talk to me. Like, that doesn't hold water mm-hmm. with me. No, Novak has been uh, engaging a lot of both sidesism lately with Stakovsky, with Gimelstab. You know, we're all we're all in this together. We've all made mistakes. It's just like blah, blah, a whole lot of nothing. So I don't, I take that with a grain of salt. Kudos to Novak that at this point in his career, he feels that it is worth his time to take up the leadership of the ATP Players Council and to try and change his sport for the better. I I believe that that is his goal. But Lord, if the net effect of that is to have on his legacy the rise of Justin Gimelstab from this burning pile of shit, (laughs) that is something that even his most ardent supporters, I imagine... Or I would well, hope. Uh, I would let's hope. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Would be hard pressed to defend. I think our friends who are Novak supporters would be would be in agreement with you. There is a faction who would agree with Novak regardless of what he did. That's all we have to say about yeah. that at the moment. I, I mean, Gibblestop being elected CEO would be the least surprising thing that happened Correct. ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Doug Ford was elected Premier of Ontario. He's a cartoonishly evil person. Donald Trump like, is the president right? of the United States. Like, people continuously vote for people who are obviously terrible in every mm-hmm. way, you know? And so let's th- not forget that this is somebody who has been woefully unqualified for every position he's had in tennis, post having a very mediocre career. Mm. That's only propped up, his resume is only propped up by working with Venus Williams. <laughs> working you, you mean her getting him a few mixed doubles titles exactly okay let's move on to something uh marginally less depressing is it no well actually kind of more martina navratilova is back mm-hmm. <laughs> she took some more time to do research and think about her stuff and so she published another essay and you may be saying wow great thank you so much more <laughs> What did we, what did we do to deserve this abundance? It was uh, at times more successful and less successful than the first essay. Mm-hmm. I would say, she seemed to grasp the bit about about men choosing to be women for specific periods of time to line their pockets. That part she yes. got. She got. She, she got that that was deeply offensive, and she she was able to distill what she wanted to accomplish with the first essay better than she actually did in the first essay, mm-hmm. right? She, this is what sort of jumped out at me as, as seeming reasonable. She says, I was motivated by a concern 
about the future of women's sport and my worry that by trying to be fair and inclusive for one group, others can be adversely affected, that eliminating one kind of discrimination can inadvertently give rise to another. It's, uh, it's cogent. It makes sense. And if that was sort of the thesis statement of the first essay, the first essay didn't do that. You know, like I read that one paragraph and I thought, well, if that's what you meant, that's not what came through. And if you had fashioned an essay that was arguing that, it may have been received better. What I've gotten from this whole thing is a situation that's akin to voter fraud in the United States. Now, bear with me with that, because <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. seems a little bit wild. I spin this tale. In conservative circles, we've been fed this story, this falsehood, over decades that there's this rampant voter fraud in the United States. And we need to enact all these policies to make sure that this doesn't happen or that we reduce it from the millions to like the thousands, right? When in fact, we know that it happens very rarely. But the real issue here and why the the bait and switch is being deployed is so that minorities and people of color are taken away from the polling stations, that their votes are suppressed, right? So it's not mm. voter fraud, it's voter suppression. And what I see here is that we're having a lot of fear drummed up for this potential boogie woman or boogeyman. Mm, like trans fraud. Exactly, it's trans fraud. Because what are what are the concrete examples of this actually happening? Set aside mm. all the sociological muddied areas that we have to traverse to get to that, right? Mm. We've talked about that on the previous episode, but what we're essentially saying is that we have to maintain the integrity of women's sport because we have all, all these men who are coming here to be fraudulent and take it away from us. And we need to be watching out for them at every turn. When in fact, if it does happen, it'll be so few instances. And if that were the case, we can deal with that retroactively. We take away medals from drug, treat, drug cheats all the time. Mm-hmm. Like this is not as big a deal as it's being made out to be. And so the net effect, just like with voter suppression, where minorities and people of color are being affected in a in a negative way by having their, their vote and their voice taken away from the process, this is what's happening to trans people in sport, mm. in my opinion. It's That's a, the comparison that I make. It's a pretty good example of a straw man, right? So in the first essay, she set up this argument in order to knock it down. So the the reality that that doesn't really happen that often in the real world or ever, like the idea that men are cynically becoming women temporarily to dominate women's sport, make money, and then go back to being men, that's a straw man. Like that's not something that happens. So she set it up, knocked it down, bam. People can see through that. Like people are more savvy I think, than, than ever. I think people are also still very susceptible to this kind of fear-mongering. Well, it's the yeah. world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And this is why the comparisons have been made between stuff that Martina has written and said with conservatives and you know people who she would normally not align herself with. And it's why her words have been used just recently, like we said on the last episode, to to make arguments to legislate against trans right. people outside of sport. Because they see common cause, but they also see common tactics, mm-hmm. right? Hence the... I like that. I, the first time you shared that example with me, I didn't get it as much. You explained it better this time. Oh, well, it, thank it, you. It wasn't me. I, 
<laughs> you know, like the brains of this operation, it's it's like 70-30. So like for me to have and this... In which direction? <laughs> so for me to bring something like this to the table, it's, it's, it's groundbreaking. Mm. <laughs> the, the takeaway from here is that Martina contains multitudes. Right? We all contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. She is a huge personality. She speaks her mind and it's not always going to be right. One of the multitudes that Martina contains is arrogance. It what helped her become what she was as an athlete mm-hmm. and what she is. Uh, she she can be snarky. She can be dismissive. These are all you know qualities of someone's personality. Th- those are probably things that I have too. And making this argument in this way shows you what those personality flaws are writ large, if you want to call them flaws. Mm-hmm. The thing that you know, thrust me back into reality is this. She says, quote, while there were some unfair articles and responses and name calling, a turf, seriously people, the support I have gotten has been quite overwhelming. Some in the open, some from the closet. Fairness has been my mantra all my life, and that will not change no matter the name calling. The communists tried to shut me up 45 years ago, and look how that worked out. Really, girl? Like, really, we're going there? Because that is not what this is. These are, a lot of the people who were offended are people who viewed you as an important figure, who who saw you as inspirational, who were hurt because they felt you were attacking their person in what you wrote. That's not what, this is not Czech communism. And it's it, just not. It's been a, a, a through line in all of this that whatever progress she's made in in righting wrongs in wheeling and coming again in a better direction it's been undercut by this snarkiness well and right you know i the beginning of it started out really well and then we get back to this what is who does this sound like the support i have gotten has been quite overwhelming does that sound like the president of the united states to you because that's what jumped out to me amazing support it's the best support we have in right? the world uh, and people have tried to take me down before and they weren't successful. Like, this this is not how you backtrack or how you make your argument more nuanced and more sensitive. Because that was supposedly her objective. Mm-hmm. It just, it didn't do it for me. In other news, Andy Murray has spoken for the first time since having his hip surgery. And he says that he definitely wants to try and come back. He also says that while a Wimbledon singles return is unlikely, maybe in doubles. <laughs> Which, if Man. you imagine where we were just mm-hmm. two months ago, not even two months ago, to now having him being pain-free, he says, and getting into his rehab, talking back then that, well, my career is probably done, and that being the, the big news cycle, to then, well, maybe he's just going to be out for three quarters of a year and then <laughs> he could be back in, like, close to tip-top shape. We don't know, well, maybe. Who knows, like, what kind of condition he'll be in and, and what his peak will be now. But back in January, he was saying, maybe I can struggle through a first-round match mm-hmm. at Wimbledon. That was it. Like, that was the goal. Yeah. Right? It is playing a painful match at Wimbledon to retire. That was if he decided to put this surgery off Mm. and do it after Wimbledon. He could maybe play one match there and then call it quits. Instead, he did the surgery and he may still get to play Wimbledon anyway and then have a longer (laughs) career. So, you know, this was, I think, 
very serious stuff and an athlete coming to grips with his playing mortality mm. and also the quality of life going forward after tennis and thinking out loud. It was, uh, I mean, incredibly sad and also a breath of fresh air to get that kind of direct access to a player's train of thought. And mm. now we're seeing how that, you know, things change. Quickly, Eugenie Bouchard is, uh, I mean, there's levels to this. <laughs> she, there's lego- <laughs> there are levels to the bag collection. She is not just a tennis player. She is now p- potentially an executive producer on uh-huh. a feature film about her story, her inspirational story. Listen, her and Sloane Stevens are frequent doubles partners. Mm-hmm. They are very good about securing bags. Yes. Sloane on court and Jeannie off court. Oh, true. I'm glad you made that distinction because Sloane is currently the number four player in the world. Correct. Jeannie Bouchard's Super Bowl date story. You remember that? We talked about that. This young gentleman said in the middle of the Super Bowl between the Patriots and the Falcons, when the Patriots were down by like 25 points, mm-hmm. if the Patriots win, will you go on a date with me, Jeannie Bouchard? She said, sure, why not? Because that she, that kind of comeback had never, ever happened mm, in the Super Bowl. But I guarantee you she went and looked through his profile and saw that he was not no like 500-pound <laughs> like parent basement dweller. No, he wasn't an incel. Like he was, he was okay. <laughs> he was cute, right? He's like a cute enough white dude. Cute adjacent, oh, at the very least. Don't be mean. At the very least. I'm right. just saying, if like the basic white boy thing is your thing, he at least had that. <laughs> like the degrees to which cuteness evolves and sprouts from that, he could have it. Okay. The point is, the Patriots made this historic comeback against the Falcons in the Super Bowl. Jeannie was then on the hook for the date, and they went to a Brooklyn Nets game together. And of course, Jeannie wore like a fur to the Nets game. Mm. Uh, it was very well chronicled on social media. It was PR gold. It was very well done. It very was, well orchestrated. It was cute. It was yeah. actually kind of cute. And it wasn't just a one-off thing. Well, according to Deadline, I'm going to call bullshit on this. They said they dated throughout the next year. I'm like, re- oh, really? Well, they had at least two public uh-huh. things together. Uh-huh. She took him to the Super you Bowl mean, the next year. But like, they implied they were like in a relationship. And like that is that is definitely not true. A movie needs to be sold. <laughs> so anyway, Fox has optioned the rights to this story as the the conceit of a romantic comedy. Genie will be installed as executive producer, and I say hell if they're buying your story that you orchestrated, get that EP credit. Why not get that money? Why right not? I am just looking forward to how much of a mess this movie is going to be. <laughs> Who do you think it will star? On do you think s- is Mila Kunis too old to be in this? On a scale from from Justin to Kelly to Sophie's Choice, yep. where do you think it will? It oh, will is fall? Sophie's Choice like the standard? <laughs> not really. Not really a romantic comedy. Okay, fine. I would argue from Justin to Kelly to When Harry Met Sally. Sure. On much, that scale, much better. Where is it going to? Because we can't use Annie Hall as the. Uh, Paragon anymore because I would you know, say the Notting Hill. Thing. For me, it would be Notting Hill. Okay, Notting Hill. I would say it it falls at a leap year. <laughs> at twenty seven dresses. <laughs> let's let's not go that far. That had James Marsden. Is Catherine Heigl gonna play Gina Bouchard? It's it's a thought. Will this be? Is a it a lifetime? thought or a thought? I would I would cast Melissa Joan Hart. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm struggling to find. To, can Candace Cameron Bure 
Maybe that skew is a bit older. No, but these are the lifetime okay. stalwarts. But this is an actual movie studio, not fine, a lifetime fine. movie. Fine, fine. Regina King. <laughs> it's going to be Scarlett Johansson. Academy Award winner, Regina King. Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson only plays against type now. No, but listen. If Jeannie were a, had, a black trans man, then I would say yes. Scarlett had, Johansson definitely would play She's her. had to give up so many roles now that she's going to take what she can get. I'm calling it right now. <laughs> In other movie news, there is a film being made about, correct me about what the specificity of this is, a Williams family movie or a Richard Williams movie? Uh, I don't know. About the, you know, Richard Williams and the rise of Venus mm-hmm. and Serena, which is going to be produced by Will and Jada Smith's production company, apparently. Mm-hmm. And Will Smith is going to star as Richard mm-hmm. Williams, which I don't quite get. <laughs> Don't quite well. Uh, Will Smith is a good actor. He has incredible movie star charisma. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. He is a box office draw. But some people are upset that a dark skinned man is being played by a light skinned guy. And I know this might be confusing to a large swath of our listeners because, you know, white people tend to not see color. shut up not our listeners fine not our listeners (laughs) but and i can speak to this as somebody who is lighter skinned and who grew up in jamaica like we're very attuned to the difference in hues between people jamaicans are yeah and there there are times when we and i in our person where you and i in our personal lives i would say that I mean, this this sounds absolutely ridiculous to say, but I can discern hues in people of color much more <laughs> intently than you can. Well, also, white people are very uncomfortable even pointing out distinctions yeah. in, in pigment, right? Yeah. That, like, it's, you know, we have enough racism to navigate, so, <laughs> so trying not to be racist. And so in black circles, when this news came out, there was a lot of talk about the fact that Will Smith just isn't black enough to play Richard Williams. And, well, the reason this is an issue is because the... The sort of reception that greeted Richard Williams when he appeared on the scene has something and a lot to do with his color. Yes, and it not not just did. being black, but being a dark-skinned mm-hmm. black person. Venus and Serena's reception as well, like they are dark-skinned black women. It's different moving through the world versus a light-skinned person. And we see that now, and we'll talk about it in the next little bit about how Naomi Osaka has kind of been cast as in a sense, like the next great white hope against Serena Williams in some circles, because she is a lighter-skinned black person, Mm -hmm. not dissimilar in color from Will Smith. And so when you talk about the fact that Richard's blackness, discernible blackness, was a huge factor in the way the Williams sisters were received and the family was received when they came on the scene, this, this casts this issue in a totally understandable light for me. And it's why I have a problem with it. That's just something to be to be looking out for. Bottom line, though, I hope they can sort it out. And I'm excited for this. Like These are stories that need to be told in as mainstream a way as possible. Let's talk about the Naomi Osaka interview you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. It was in The Undefeated by Soraya Nadia McDonald. The Undefeated was billed as the Black Grantland when it was conceived. It dodged Jason Whitlock. Who was somehow <laughs> no really but I know. it's very serious somehow espn installed jason whitlock 
to be the editorial voice of mm -hmm. this website. It's not dissimilar from Justin Gimmelstab being installed as the, mm. the head of the ATP. Right. It's that egregious. Right. So this was meant to be an African-American look at sport, at culture, at all the things that Grantland was very, very good yes. at covering. Thank God Whitlock's tenure collapsed spectacularly because we're getting stuff like this now from McDonald's piece about Naomi Osaka. It was it was revelatory. Standing. It was so good. And the thing is, this is what happens when you have female and black voices covering black women. Not to say that you have to be a woman of color to kind of get Naomi Osaka or write about her properly, but there needs to be different looks. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's possible that Naomi might open up differently depending on who it is that's interviewing her, right? What level of assuredness do you have if you're Naomi Osaka when sitting down with a white person as opposed to a person of color that in a discussion of race and your place within it in tennis that it's it's going to be presented in a way that you intended right like if naomi sat down with me right would, would i have been able to get this or you know, would she have been willing to give you that it, exactly and would i have presented these quotes the same way certainly not a simple thing like the organization of a story Lord knows, we know how that can go <laughs> yeah. awry in tennis. So Naomi, uh, somehow, with this one interview, changed a lot of minds out there. I saw Rena's Army Naomi haters saying, oh, maybe, maybe we judged her incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Like, literally changing their minds in the moment that they read this story. So clearly, I would recommend that you read the story. But Naomi talked about how she and Serena are sort of cast as these polar opposites. She feels that a lot of people are fans of her because they dislike Serena so much. This was in response to Naomi being asked about the Australian Open cartoon mm -hmm. from, I guess, the Sydney Herald, was it? The, yeah, the Sydney Morning Herald. It was one of the most explicitly racist things you could ever see. Mm -hmm. And that was Naomi's response to say that, you know, I gather that folks aren't really here just for me. They're here for me only insofar as I can be the person to beat Serena, the person that they hate and want to cut down a peg. And she doesn't like that. But then she pivots to then kiss the ring, which I think is where a lot of these Rena's Army folks are now coming around, right? Right. Because right. like the stuff that Naomi is saying that Naomi is saying here is not new. Like she said stuff like this before. She's always professed her love of the Williams sisters, especially Serena. But they've wanted her to explicitly, unreservedly kiss the ring. And specifically in this instance, the way that that makes it different, maybe, is to acknowledge the racism that Serena has faced. And to say, with respect to Indian Wells, unpromptedly, to say like, wow, like she's like the strongest person I know because like watching that growing up as a person of color, like that was inspirational to see her mm -hmm. overcome that. Like that is something that rings true with a lot of people of color and black people who, who love Serena and watch tennis. Because that to this day, that's not something that's given its uh, proper place in the history of the Williams sisters, right? It's, it's kind of like 
okay, yeah, it happened. I'm glad we're able to get over it. Right. I'll give you that. But, like, it still really wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. We talked about this in 2015 when Serena chose to play Indian Wells again, that the effect could be, well, this is something that happened, but it's over and all is forgiven. In, in the years since, the ownership has changed, but I can't recall hearing an apology from the tournament. Serena came back on her own accord and decided to line up her return with the uh, Equal Justice Initiative, if you remember. Yes. So, like, something that acknowledges the unequal treatment of black people historically in the U.S. Like, it was a politically motivated return. In the justice system. Yes. The fact that Naomi brought this up unprompted, I think, raised a lot of antennas. Yes. Right? From Mm -hmm. people were like, oh. Because immediately that cast this in the context of Mm anti-blackness, period. Like, whether or not she said it explicitly... That's what this is. And it gave her some credibility as a mm. black person. Because I get the impression that some folks don't see her as a black person mm. within black communities. And so to me, what jumped out at me is like, wow, Naomi has this uncommon understanding of where she, she stands in all this. She gets that a lot of people don't like Serena. She gets that some people have flocked to her defense because they feel she was victimized by Serena. She said she doesn't want those kind of fans. She wants people like her for her. Mm. But further than that, she sees that as a black woman, the things that Serena has gone through and has changed have made her path easier. Mm -hmm. You know, so that is, God, that is so much more than you should reasonably expect. I'm just, I continue to be surprised by how much she gets it. Like, this is a very smart woman. And it's something that strikes a chord with us, too, because we see it every year now. This is, what, the fourth year that Serena's been back at Indian Wells? She missed one, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And every time she wins a match, she's on court, and she's been force-fed and led to the water to drink, singing praises about the crowd and how great they were to her. Right. And I don't know how, in that moment, these on-court presenters aren't able to understand the, the history and the, the subtext and the context and the loadedness of that question. Mm. Well, because like, this is the same crowd who did what they did back then, fine. Right. Not the same people, but you know, the same place. But also, these are not Serena's people. <laughs> right. They're not. You know, she's... Last night she handled it well. She said, I'm from Southern California. She shouted out Compton, CPT. That was like her tiny act of resistance. Mm-hmm. But the idea that because she's in Southern California, she has anything in common with Palm Springs. Like we know that this is a universe apart from how she grew mm-hmm. up. She has the money in common, but when it comes to the... Now gi- she does. When it comes to the being just a regular old black person when somebody doesn't know you're Serena Williams. <laughs> right. Like, she's still just a black person yeah. in America. Right. Again, I don't want to harp on this, but uh, the fact that Naomi knows her place in this is is impressive to me because they tried it with Sloan a few years ago, casting Sloan as kind of the innocent, more palatable black girl in opposition to Serena, who is mean, arrogant, the caricature that we saw in the Sydney exactly. Morning Herald. Who's angry, who is entitled, who uh, constantly claims that she is the victim. Who is exactly everything that you have always believed her to be, mm-hmm. in spite 
of the rehabilitation that she's scripted right. in the last few years. So they tried it with Sloane. I guess they got bored with Sloane and decided to assign this role to Naomi. So she was then cast as the model minority. So, you you know, you can't say we're racist because we're fans of this other black person. Mm-hmm. That's how sinister it is. It right. sounds like we're making this shit up. But this is the history of the great white hope now appropriated within people of color. Mm-hmm. And just remember, this young woman is not stupid. She knows what she's she mm-hmm. knows what y'all are doing. And as much as you may think that she's meek and mild or like playing some kind of game and she's not who she claims she is, that she needs to grow up or whatever. This is somebody who is mature beyond her years, evidently. Mm-hmm. And much to the dismay of her IMG handler, who was sitting there during the interview, she said all, all that she wanted mm-hmm. to say. All I hope is that I'm obviously like I come across as a Naomi Stan at this point, which I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a mutually exclusive situation to be a fan of Serena and Naomi. Mm. And we should not be so want to fall victim to that trap. And we should be aware of the trappings of doing so. And maybe spare a thought for how this affects Naomi. Maybe. Because it's obviously something that she's been going through it since the U.S. Open. Chomping at the bit at little salacious headlines that Sports Illustrated will tweet out about Mm. Naomi having tea about that situation. That is like Bush League stuff. Like we can be better than this. And sadly it's taken something that it's so hefty and good in terms of sport journalism to maybe change some people's minds. Mm. I would just ask that we maybe pay more attention and set our feelings at the door a little bit when we're dealing with some of these people because I I truly believe that there is nothing sinister in Naomi. On that note, uh, what is the score in the Venus match? She was down a set and a break and then went up 5-4 in the second. And I can now tell you that it is... 6-5 6-5 Venus on serve in the second set. Petra is serving to send it to a second set tiebreak. So I'm going to go 10 to that at this point. <laughs> we'll be back at the end of Indian Wells. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at The Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram. Again, please, if you enjoy the podcast, shout us out on the interwebs give us a review on itunes that is one of the tangible ways that you can tell the world how great we are if you do think so and help build our profile till next time thank you thank you very much Mm